This morning, we are going to continue a series that we are doing through what we do in church together. So we've been tracing through some of these habits that we have as people of God, habits that bring us into church, habits that we do in church. We've talked about things like how we call into worship, and we've talked about how we sing and why we sing and what songs are for. We've talked about things like how we profess our faith together. We've talked about how we receive God's will. Today, we're moving on through that, and we're talking about confession, how it is that we confess our sins to one another. I don't know what confession brings to mind for you, right? Confession is one of those words that sometimes maybe we avoid or we see within a very specific and particular context. Television and movies help with this. Confession is a big part of television and movies, right? If you are really old school, so you remember way back a show like um, Perry Mason, where a courtroom drama, right? Perry Mason, the lawyer, would always have the witness who was actually the criminal would be on the stand, and somehow Perry Mason would always ask just the right questions to eventually bring out a confession. It was me. I did it, right? That moment of confession, or movies like the 1992 film, A Few Good Men, in which Tom Cruise plays this lawyer who's, who's questioning a high-ranking colonel played by Jack Nicholson and, and trying to get him to admit and finally admits and says, I want the truth. And Nicholson has that iconic line, right? You can't handle the truth. And eventually says, you're right. I did it. Confession is what he does. Not always a courtroom scene, right? There are other ones as well. You remember Peter Falk, who plays Detective Columbo, would always just badger and nag at whoever he was questioning till eventually, that's fine, I can't take it anymore. I give up. It was me. I did it, right? Would do something like that. One of my favorites, this group of kids that travels around in their van, the mystery machine, with their dog, and I don't know how it is, they always stumble on these spooky shenanigans, but they always seem to find it. And always ends with the confession that has the same line, right? I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those meddling kids and their dog, right? Any Scooby-Doo fans, you know that, right? Or if you, uh, if, you're, if you enjoy a good William Shatner cameo in 1980s pop culture references, binge a few episodes of Psych, where the same thing, some whodunit mystery that always seems to end with apprehending the actual criminal with a confession, Fine, I did it. It was me. So many of the things that we see before us in our media, in our movies, in our television, sort of center around this idea of confession. We're drawn to that for some reason. We're drawn to that, I wonder, if because we just have this thing inside of us that craves and wants to know a revelation of the truth. We just want to see the truth, right? Just tell us how it really is. Make whatever was unjust to be just by revealing the truth in a confession. We see that. And it happens in the Bible. In fact, you go way back to the start of the Bible, right? And the very first sin that we see in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve immediately results in the very first confession, that when Adam and Eve sin, they try to cover up, they try to hide, but God seeks them out and comes to find them, says, why are you hiding? What have you done? And Adam and Eve confess, 
all right, we did the very thing you told us not to do. We ate that fruit off that tree. Confession. It's as old as the creation in that way. So the Bible has a few things to say about confession. What confession is, why we confess, why we do that as part of our worship, and what it does for us. Right? How, how that forms and shapes us. I'm going to look at two passages today. Two places we're going to go in scripture. One Old Testament, one New Testament. And this is particularly so that we can see how scripture deals with confession. How that comes before us. Right? So the Old Testament passage I'm going to go to is Psalm 32. It's printed in your bulletin there. This is a Psalm of David. You know David, you remember David. Often we remember David, he was that guy who killed the giant Goliath with a slingshot. He became king of Israel. But also David, let's be honest, had an extramarital affair, tried to cover it up by orchestrating the murder of his mistress's husband, even though he was an innocent man, was confronted on that and confessed. So David writes about that in Psalm 32. And then we'll go to a parable of Jesus in the New Testament, which also deals with confession. All right. So beginning with Psalm 32, says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. Surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle. Or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked. But the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord. Be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright. And then the New Testament from Luke 18, this parable of Jesus. Luke 18, I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. 
and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alice was one of those people that everybody seemed to like. She was one of those people who was always the kind of person who would greet everybody on a Sunday morning as they came into church. So when Alice would come in, she would have words with everyone as they stopped by and greet everyone and chat with everyone. And it's not, and Alice, this was the church in Denver and Alice was not from Denver, but she moved there and got to know people. Alice was originally from Patterson, New Jersey. In fact, uh, she was part of the DeWall Malafite family from New Jersey, which spread to Denver. It has roots, it comes even here to Granville. They're familiar. But Alice was one of those people who would just connect with everyone. And Alice had one of those qualities that, that I would refer to as New Jersey blunt, meaning she would not hold back what was on her mind. Right? She would be honest about that. She would tell it to you how it really was. If I really wanted to know how the sermon was that day, I would ask Alice because she would tell me the honest truth about how it was. That's who Alice was. But not in a mean way, right? Not in a way that was rude or not in a way that was judgmental, just in a way that was honest, right? Kind of the uh, the opposite of, Maybe what we call or refer to as Midwest nice or New Jersey or um, uh, Minnesota nice, if you've heard that term before, right? Something that's a little more common around here where people will be polite and cordial and say the right things, even though in their mind they're thinking something mean or rude. And as soon as your back is turned, they've got a whole different story. Alice was not like that. What you see was what you got, and she would let you know. So you knew where you stood. With someone like Alice. You knew that she was being honest and genuine. You knew that she was authentic. And people liked that. Right? There was a quality that draw people to her. A quality in which people knew that, you know what? She's not pretending. She's not being fake. She's not lying to me. But, but when she says something that's a compliment, she means it. It's for real. And when she says something that's a critique or a correction, you know that she has that with the best heart in mind. And here's the thing. She was not afraid to admit when she was wrong about something. Not afraid to admit her own faults. It's not that she was accepting blame for everything, or it's not that she was too hard on herself, but I think there was an honesty in that to say, you know what? Sometimes I mess it up too. And I'm not, I'm going to be honest and right out front with that as well. I'm not going to try to hide that or cover that up. A piece of confession that goes with that. And people found that refreshing. But while we look at that and may respect that and honor that, isn't it so true that so often we have difficulty emulating and embracing that kind of a characteristic in our own lives, right? We struggle to be people like that, who can be authentic, honest, genuine. Even, even though it's something that we respect in others, and maybe would want to have as a quality of our own, we struggle to find it. 
So today we're going to consider confession and how confession, as we understand it and practice that as a part of our worship, may in fact help us to take a few steps in that direction of finding that quality of genuine, authentic honesty that we admire so much in other people, but somehow can remain so elusive in our own lives. Confession may have something to do with that. All right. So two passages that I pulled out for today, Psalm 32 and Luke 18, Old Testament and New Testament. And something similar happens in both of these passages. They both talk about confession in some way, and they both highlight for us two features in particular. Two features being this, that in both those passages, it starts with a picture or a posture of someone who does not confess. Right, someone who fails to confess, who who withdraws and holds back that confession, a something that I'll just call that posture non-confession. Right? Both passages talk about that. Here's someone who's non-confessing, and then both passages lean in towards let me show you a posture of someone who does confess. Who does bring confession? All right? So those two things that we'll see in these passages as we work through that, all right? So what does this non-confession look like? What does it look like for a person to live in a way where the posture which they maintain is a posture that says, I'm not going to confess. I'm going to hold back from confessing. I'm not going to be honest and genuine about that. Well, first of all, David gives us a picture of that, right? In Psalm 32, he gives us that picture when he begins and talks about that. In verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent, here's what he says. My bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. Your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped like in the heat of summer. David's picture there of what life was like for him when he failed to confess was one where it just ate him up from the inside. Do you catch that in the words of the poetry that David gives to Psalm 32? It meant that when he refuses to confess, he has to live in a way that tries to convince God and everyone else that there's nothing wrong. I've got it all together. I haven't messed up. I don't falter. I'm not struggling with any sin or misdeed in any way. And eventually, David is confronted and buckles under that strain. It's pressure. The pressure that comes with life when we put it upon ourselves to live in such a way in which we are constantly trying to project for other people that I'm not the one who's at fault. The projecting for other people that I don't do things wrong, that I've got this figured out, that I do this right. If there's anything wrong here, it's somebody else's fault that makes it wrong, not mine. There's pressure that goes with that. A pressure that David describes as something that ate him up from the inside and never let him go day and night. It tormented him to hang on to that. I think we all know something about that. Maybe not to that extent, 
But we all know what it's like to have those moments in our own lives in which perhaps we find ourselves in that moment of of having to hang on to something that we just can't admit we did wrong, that I'm at fault for, that I struggle with, that I may carry some burden and guilt for. And maybe it's not something huge. Maybe it's something trivial. But we still do that. We, We have that urge to say, but I'm fine. I'm good. It's right. I didn't do anything wrong. How often we hear these stories, and and sometimes it's refreshing. Sometimes it's refreshing on a Sunday morning when, you know, as I'm greeting people, and yeah, how are you doing today? Every once in a while, I will get the honest answer. It was a struggle just to get here today, Pastor. There was arguing, and no one was getting along, and couldn't find the car keys, and, you know, we were just at each other. But we made it. We're here. Not that great, but we're here. That's honest. That's refreshing. But how often isn't the urge to do the opposite? Right? Walk into church. Hey, how you doing today? Great. Fine. I'm good. We're good. When maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was a struggle. Maybe there was tension in relationships. But something in us, I don't know what it is. Something in us says, nope, 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 nope. I didn't do anything bad here. We're in a good place now, and I'm not carrying any fault or guilt into that. We have those moments, don't we? Those moments that come in our lives where we do try, for whatever reason, to cover that up. Fail to confess. And maybe we don't know or feel or experience that kind of eating away from the inside like David describes in this psalm, but it's there. Isn't it the pressure, the pressure that goes along with having to live this life that looks like I'm making all the right moves and I'm not messing up pressure that comes along with that. That's what David describes. Jesus takes it a step further in the parable that he tells, right? He he talks about this Pharisee who's confident in his own righteousness. Look at what he does. This Pharisee in Luke 18. He has to come before in the temple and he has to pray. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other bad people, right? It begins with a comparison. I need to pick out some people who I know I can squash and push down because by pushing them down, I know I can raise myself up. So it begins with that. And then it goes to this laundry list of, I'm going to handpick a few things that I think are really good qualities about me. And then I'm going to handpick a few really bad things that I know I can pin on other people. And if I do that, then I can come out on top. That posture of non-confession looks like that. A life where... We're trying to stay on top. And the way that we stay on top is by trying to say, look at all my good things and look at all of their bad things. Non-confession brings us to that. Maybe it's not as extreme as we see in this story with the Pharisee, but little pieces of that show up in our lives, don't they? Moments where we try to put the best foot forward Moments where maybe we can point a judgmental finger at something that would hardly ever come back at us, but can easily condemn others. 
Jesus gives a picture of that in this Pharisee who fails to confess and takes it to the point of actually starting to live and believe in his own self-righteousness. And and by trying to embrace and live and believe in that own self-righteousness has to keep this thing going. I've got to keep this going to live in a way where I'm always trying to push other people down and always trying to lift myself up. Because the only way that charade can keep happening for me to avoid confession is to keep doing that, pressing other people down to lift myself up. Jesus gives that picture of what a posture of non-confession looks like. But then there's the alternative, right? In both those stories, in Psalm 32 and in Luke 18, it turns... And both David and Jesus say, now let me give you the picture of what confession looks like. What a posture of confession looks like. So Psalm 32, here's what David says. Right after where I left off, right in verse 5, he picks it up again. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. Did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. That David brings himself to a place of being able to confess and admit, you know what? It's eating me up inside to hang on to this life where I always have to be the one who comes out on top and I never do anything wrong. But instead, what happens if I simply own up with some honest, genuine authenticity and say, you know what? I messed up. Sometimes I fail. Even though I give my best efforts, it doesn't always come out right because I'm still a broken person. I still sin. I still fail. That we see then that this confession that David brings, this confession is a key. It's a key to genuine authenticity and humility before God. This practice of coming before God in confession, then it's the thing that leads us into a life in which our posture can be one of being genuinely authentic, right? That quality that we admire in other people, that honesty that they have, confession helps practice a life that brings us there, that gets us towards that, that moves us in that direction. That kind of person where, I mean, I think the kind of person that I would love to see as a compliment would be, you know what? There's a person who's the same in private as they are in public, right? The way that they conduct themselves when they're all alone, the things they say and think when they're all alone matches the kind of person they are when they're around other people. Nothing to hide, nothing to hold back, nothing to pretend, nothing to cover up that genuine authenticity that comes with that. David brings himself to that point. I can't hide this anymore. I've got to bring it to God. I've got to confess what that looks like. And then he's forgiven. Look at how Jesus plays that out in this parable in the New Testament as well. That this tax collector stands in the corner stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the reply that Jesus gives, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You see what happens in both these cases that the confession, the confession that they find brings them to a place where in both of those situations, there is forgiveness from God. That God forgives when we come to a place of authentic, genuine humility where we can be honest before God, then God forgives. Couple results that we get out of this then, right? What, what does this look like as it shows up in our lives? Confession. How does that look and as it takes shape in our lives? I, I'm going to talk about three things here, right? A, an internal result, an external result, and an eternal result, right? So internal, external, eternal. First, an internal result that in both of these cases that we see in Psalm 32 with David and in Luke 18 with Jesus, in both of those cases, there is an internal result of forgiveness that God forgives. That when we come before God and ask for his forgiveness, that he grants that. And what does that do for us internally? You know, that, that gives me a certain identity. That tells me something about who I am. There may be lots of things that we use to fill in the blank for who I am and what my identity is. In fact, even within the world and the life of a Christian, we might have some answers for that. What does it mean to be a Christian? What's my identity as a Christian? And and we may talk about things like, well, it means that I believe in Jesus and I have faith. It means that I am saved by grace through faith. It means that I'm part of a church family that has a mission together. It means all of those things. But there's an identity that also comes with confession, an identity that says, I am a sinner who is forgiven. Confession means that part of my identity before God is is an identity that says, you know what? I am a broken sinner who is forgiven, that God forgives sinners like me. And I'm going to be honest with God about that. That I am a broken sinner, that I make mistakes, that I mess up. And the only way I find that forgiveness is through God. Confessing to God. That I'm able to be honest about that. The other internal result of that then is that it puts me in a position where I know and express that I need Jesus. Do you you catch that? Especially from that story that Jesus tells, that parable in Luke 18. This is a Pharisee that doesn't need God. God, here's all the things that I do to make myself good. And you know what? I don't really need you for any of that. I got this covered. But it's the tax collector who says, you know what? If I'm going to have any kind of life at all, if there's any step forward for me at all, it's only going to be because Jesus forgives me because I... I need Jesus. And without Jesus, I can't even take one step forward in my life with God. Confession brings that to us, right? It's that way where we remind ourselves over and over again that we are people who need Jesus. So internal result, that's what we see. Now, external result. What's an external result of confession? How does that play out from who we are for other people? 
In Psalm 32, I read the entire Psalm, but did you notice that in Psalm 32, that even though it begins with this personal confession of David, that the Psalm ends with a call to worship. It ends with David saying, now, you know what? Let's all praise God together. Let's rejoice together. That there's an external result, something that starts internally and then pushes outwardly in that confession that David gives. You see, because this genuine authenticity that we seek in this honest confession that we bring is something that we then can embrace in our relationships with others as well. I talked about Alice. Alice had that habit. She could do that. That the honest authenticity that she brought before God in who she was became an honest authenticity that also shared in her relationships with other people. That it becomes a way that we interact together. If I can be honest to God, then maybe I can be honest with others as well. If I have nothing to hide from God, then maybe I don't have to hide my faults and mistakes from others as well. Maybe I can be honest with others. But more than that, more than that, when I find that honest authenticity where I embrace that identity, that I can see that in other people as well. Think of it this way. If I live in such a way where I know and I admit I am a broken sinner who needs forgiveness, then you know what? I start to see other people that way too. We are all broken sinners who needs God's forgiveness. So if I know I need it, and I know that only through Jesus I am made justified before God, then I can live in a way that treats other people like that too. I know it. I get it. We're all broken people. We're all messed up. We all need God's forgiveness. And if God can forgive me, he can forgive you too. I'm going to live with other people like that. Instead of judging, instead of condemning, instead of pushing down, instead of pointing faults. I'm going to live with other people in a way that says, you know what? I know we're not perfect people, but God can forgive us. He forgives me. He can forgive you too. It, and it becomes that external way that we live with others when we practice this confession. So internal result, external result. Now, eternal result, something that's eternal that comes from this, that both David and Jesus talk about being forgiven and justified before God simply because we confess, because we declare the need for God to forgive us. And I don't bring anything on my own. But God does that in his mercy. That when we come before God that way, that God forgives us. And it's entirely then based upon his grace. And only his grace. We talk about that a lot in church, don't we? Grace. In fact, the two songs that we sang this morning as we gathered in were both songs that talked about grace. It's one of those church words we use all the time. We read about it in the Bible all the time. It's in our songs all the time. It's in our prayers that we give. We talk about grace. But how often it is that we stop short of fully embracing what grace brings to our own lives. 
that understanding that I'm only right with God because of his grace. That's it. Not anything else that I bring. Sometimes we refer to this as the offense of the gospel. That the gospel is offensive. And that can be understood in different ways. Sometimes maybe people think, well, the gospel is offensive because it makes claims about resurrection. That doesn't offend people. That's not offensive. Sometimes people think the gospel is offensive because we say Jesus is the only way. Some people may find that offensive. But I think what Jesus identifies as the offense of the gospel is grace. Grace is offensive to some people. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus tells this other story in the New Testament, a parable where uh, there's a landowner who has a farm, right? He's, he's got a field that's ready for harvest and he goes out and he hires workers. If you know this story, goes out in the morning, he hires some workers, they go out in the field, goes out about noon, hires more workers, they go out in the field, goes in the afternoon, hires more workers, they go out in the field, does this pattern. At the end of the day, they all come in, they all get paid. They all get paid the same thing. And the way Jesus tells the story, you know what? Those people who were hired in the morning, those people who've been in the field all day long, they are offended. Offended. How dare you give us the same thing that these guys got? We've been busting our tails all day long trying to do this for you. Don't we get more for that? Doesn't that count for something more? They're offended. That's what Jesus identifies as the offense of the gospel. That grace as it comes to us, the forgiveness of God as it comes to us, comes to everyone the same way. And it doesn't matter where you've been, who you are, what you've done. When you come to God in repentance and faith, by his grace, we're forgiven that he forgives confession reminds us of that because it's an eternal result. There's nothing you have to do to keep that going. It's not like you have union dues. You have to keep paying to stay in the grace club. It's a lifetime membership and you're in and that's it. Nothing takes it away. Nothing ever takes God's love away. Confession means I come before God and I admit that grace is the only thing that opens that door. Only grace. And once that door is open, God's love never lets you go. Always hangs on to you. Forever a part of his family. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word. The reminder that we are imperfect people. So God, we pray today that, uh, that you would help us to embrace that identity that we all need to confess. That we are broken sinners. Forgiven. Redeemed. Justified. Lord, help us to live in ways where we embrace that identity on our own. Internally to know that we belong to you. Help us to embrace that in a way that shows up externally, that we show that to others and how we live with one another. And help us to find assurance that we know that this is something that holds on to us eternally for all time, that we are yours. 
thank you for that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.